Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. As we have already prayed and sung, come, teach our souls to love your truth. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Good to be uh, back here at nine o'clock in the day chapel. It's been a while. Uh, since we've been here gathered. And if you've noticed in the bulletin, today is a feast day in the church. Um, We're we're in the midst of the Epiphany season, right after the Feast of the Epiphany, which was celebrated Friday. Um, Usually the Magi, the three kings, are the focus of Epiphany. But if you look in the prayer book, there's this little note that the Feast of the Epiphany is the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. As you may know, the ministry of Jesus took place in Israel. It was mainly uh, directed to the Jewish people. Um, There are a few exceptions that we read about in the Gospels. Uh, One was in Matthew chapter 8. There's a centurion, a Roman soldier, whose servant had fallen ill. He went to Jesus and beseeched Jesus to heal his servant. Um, And he didn't even need Jesus to come and do it. He said, if you just say the word, it will be enough because of who you are. And it was really a foil to contrast the incredible faith of this uh, pagan leader, this soldier who should not have had faith, uh, with the lack of faith being found in the religious leaders of the time. It also pointed to a future coming priority for the mission of God. In Matthew 8, Jesus says, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. In many ways, the Feast of the Epiphany, the three magi, is where we recognize that those have come from the east to recline at table, those strange magi who came probably from Babylon against all odds, They respond to revelation in the sky. They make the long trek, and they bring gifts to the one born uh, king of the Jews, not appointed king of the Jews by the Romans. And and that celebration, again, was on Friday, January 6th. And in many ways, you might notice that our our calendar in this season starts to get blurry. Um, The second Sunday of Christmas and Epiphany and the Sunday after Epiphany, the baptism of Jesus it all kind of swirls with different themes. We, we try to figure out how many times can we sing We Three Kings before we're just done with it. Um, but it's all kind of getting blurry. Um, and today is actually kind of recognizing after the epiphany, the baptism of Jesus. But I want to do something a little different if it's okay. I want us to spend time in Acts chapter 10. Um, We're going to talk about baptism, but not the baptism of Jesus, but the first baptism of the Gentiles. Because if the visit of the wise men shows that they came from the east to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, I think Acts 10 is where we see those from the west who recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. This fullness of the East and the West, the Gentiles coming in. So I want to talk about these Gentiles from the West in Acts 10, if that's okay. Um, Again, the epiphany response of those magi was really just the first fruits. 
And there's this vision in Philippians chapter 2, when at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And in the Epiphany season, we see people coming to that realization, coming on bended knee to worship Jesus as he has been revealed. And so again, the Magi came first. Um, And the Magi would have likely traveled well-known roads. They came over land. They would have come from Babylon in the east, and they probably would have traveled over what was called the Royal Road. Uh, The Royal Road is this kind of ancient superhighway, this east-west artery that ran all the way from Asia Minor, what we would know as Turkey, across the north part of the Middle East, all the way uh, to Persia. In, In many ways, it connects Europe and Asia. Um, this road. So they would have come across that road, and then eventually they would have turned south. And they would have gone south down the King's Highway. And that road ran all the way down through Jordan, through Israel, eventually to Egypt. And so it connects Europe and Asia with Africa. You see how strategic this entire region, this entire artery is. And, and these were major roads major trade routes that would provide food and water along the path, Um, safety uh, to travelers such as the three magi with their entourage. I imagine lots of camels were involved in that. I don't know. And these were long journeys across the land. They would have taken years. But if you were coming from the east or even up from the south, um, you would likely have come on one of those roads. But what about the west? Where would you have come from? How would you get there? Well, you wouldn't come by land. You would come by sea. And if you were coming by sea from the west, from Rome, you would come through the great port of Caesarea on the Mediterranean. I want to talk about that just a little bit. It helps us get the context of what is happening in Acts 10 and how significant this is. Caesarea Maritima is a, it's a city, it's on the, the northwest part of Israel, and it's a major strategic city uh, built and engineered by Herod the Great. Um, and it actually has this incredible artificial harbor that was made in the water. Um, uh, we were there in November with a group, you can still see the harbor. Um, men go out with these great little fishing poles and they're fishing on the harbor Uh, But people are still trying to figure out how in the world did they have the engineering know-how to sink these massive stones and make an artificial harbor so the ships could come in. Um, And it's a fascinating thing because usually if you had a harbor in the ancient world, it was because there was a favorable coastline that made a natural harbor. Um, Like, for example, right after Christmas, some of you know, my wife and daughter, we went to New York for a trip, New York City, and we took one of those boat tours. You ever been on a boat tour of New York? Uh, It's a great way to see the Statue of Liberty and kind of see everything. Uh, But we had this guide, and like a refrain, he wanted us to know what made New York City great. And he must have said a dozen times that New York City grew because the harbor was broad and deep and the Hudson River never froze. The harbor is broad and deep, and the Hudson 
never freezes because of its salt content, connective. And essentially that meant that that great city of New York could grow up and it could actually do shipping all year round. And you could actually have major arteries into the city. So it had this favorable um, topography. But the harbor at Caesarea Maritima is totally different. You wouldn't look at it and go, this is where we should put a harbor, or this is where God has made a harbor. Here's where we can make our fortunes. Herod said, no, I'm going to impose my will on God's creation. He did that over and over again. So he sinks these stones, and he makes this incredible harbor, and it becomes uh, the shipping gateway from Rome into the rest of the known world. And why this is important to know is that it makes this city, Caesarea Maritima, uh, a center of wealth and trade, and almost everything that would come from the west, from Rome, by sea, would come through there. It was the most strategic uh, city, probably, for Rome's occupation of Israel at the time. So if there are going to be any Gentiles that come from the west to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom we should expect to find them coming from this great city, this strategic city, Caesarea Maritima. And that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, and we didn't, sometimes our our readings, um, I occasionally quibble with where they make the distinctions. Um, Acts chapter 10 is this entire story of Peter and Cornelius, the centurion. And what we read is just like the, the caption. It's the, here's the lesson to take away from the story. And so I want to talk about Peter and Cornelius, and then we'll look at this Acts 10 uh, passage together. Because what's happening here is that the Lord is teaching Peter and the apostles and the early church, not just that there's a manifestation to the Gentiles, but that there's a mission to the Gentiles. He wants them to see it. He wants them to see the new thing he is doing, and in many ways, as shocking as Jesus' baptism was and still is, this is equally scandalous because Acts 10 ends with the baptism of Gentiles by water and the Spirit. Um, so let's look a little bit at Cornelius and Peter, Acts chapter 10. Um, I like to call this episode the near invention of Cajun food. So um, I'm just going to walk you through it. You may know the broad strokes of the story. Acts 10 says, at Caesarea, that's the city we've been talking about, uh, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Um, And and you may just, again, if you don't have this in mind, the city, you're like, okay, big deal. What they're telling you here is that Cornelius himself is a big deal. He's in the most strategic city in the region, He's protecting Rome's interest in the region. He's not just a foot soldier. He's an officer in a well-known battalion. Um, This is not someone who has misbehaved like Pontius Pilate or made a mess of things in Rome and been exiled to the desert down to Jerusalem. This is someone who is a key leader, a strategic man, a great man from the West, a centurion named Cornelius, and we're told that he is devout, that he's a God-fearer. Somehow in his time in the Holy Land, he has come to respect the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He's seeking the Lord, even though he doesn't know fully what that looks like. And so what we have in Acts 10 that's it's intriguing is we have concurrent, simultaneous visions that God gives. God gives Cornelius a vision and a word that he should seek Simon Peter in nearby Joppa. And then we have a long vision and word for Peter. Um, let's look at that. Uh, this is in Acts 10. Um, and what we have is that Peter, he's going to have this vision, uh, but he's, he's praying in the morning. It says Peter is praying and he gets hungry while he prays, which I just love that detail. Do you struggle to pray sometimes? <laughs> like, I'm hungry. I need a little coffee. This is not working. Peter gets hungry and he falls into a trance. Well, I think he fell asleep while praying. Come on. You've done that too. And he has a vision and Acts says what he sees is this sheet descending from heaven and all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air are falling out. And Peter's hungry. And he sees all these strange animals and reptiles and birds. And he hears a voice that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Like I said, this is almost when Cajun food got invented. I'm pretty sure there was some shrimp or alligator, something falling from the sky. But Peter said, no, by no means, Lord. In verse 14, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice says, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happens a few times. Again, it's Peter. Um, it takes a minute. Um, but Peter is left processing what has just happened. What did this mean? And then lo and behold, Cornelius appears. Cornelius has responded to his vision. Peter is processing his vision. And even Peter, God bless him, thick-headed Peter gets it. The animals and the reptiles and the birds, it's not about Cajun food. It's about the Gentiles. And Peter meets Cornelius, and Acts 10 says, Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit uh, anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Uh, John Stott, um, who was a Church of England minister for decades, uh, writes that it is difficult Difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles, even God-fearing Gentiles on the other. He said, now this is not that the Old Testament would support such a divide. The psalmists and the prophets foretold the day when God's Messiah would inherit the nations. The Lord's servant would be their light. All nations would flow to the Lord's house. God would pour his spirit out on all mankind. The tragedy at this time was that Israel had twisted um, what we would know as the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. And they became filled with racial pride and, and hatred, and they developed traditions which kept them apart, such that no Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into their home. Now, what is God teaching his people here with this food, with Cornelius, with this calling of the Gentiles? Uh, well, some have said that this entire episode is just about 
we need to get rid of distinctions. Don't worry about distinctions. Just be tolerant of everyone and everything. Um, I've heard it taught that this is a sign within the New Testament that all religions lead to God. Because this Cornelius was a God-fearer, um, and then look what happens. And I would just say, if, if you read that into this passage, um, you've missed the point entirely. And you've read into it values that maybe are valued in our culture or valued more broadly, um, rather than letting this uh, teach us and receive instruction. You see, the reason this man Cornelius was a devout worshiper of Israel's God was precisely that he was fed up with the Roman gods that he knew. The way of life that he knew seemed wrong to him, seemed false to him. And so he is eager to follow what seems to him the right God and the right way. He's seeking. He's fearing God. It's not the case that God just calls Cornelius as he is or accepts us as we are simply. That's not what is behind all this language of clean and unclean or the epiphany manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. God calls out to all of us as we are. He calls to us as we are, but responding to that invitation will involve being made clean, being washed, being set apart, being sanctified, being renewed. It involves the complete transformation, um, which is acted out here in repentance and forgiveness, in baptism, in the receiving of the Spirit. No, this is not a, you know, an 18th century lesson on tolerance. What we have is a full-on display in this remarkable story um, of the glorious first century truth that in Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, God has broken down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. Amen. These peoples who hated one another mutually, this barrier has been broken down. And really, in many ways, the, the witness of the New Testament is that God has um, revealed the folly. He's humiliated both their positions. Because the Jews apparently lose their privileged position here in many ways. And the Gentiles, God bless them, they have to acknowledge a Jewish Messiah who was crucified on a tree and raised from the dead. As Paul would say, it's, it's folly and foolishness to both. The scandal that is the cross. God has broken down this barrier in order to reveal his mercy to both. God's mercy to all, God's grace to everyone. See, the epiphany manifestation to the Gentiles is a manifestation of the mission of God's people to all nations. And they want to make it really clear here that the people that the church is sure God would never reach, I mean, why in the world would God call a Roman soldier? That's who just crucified Jesus. God makes the point, look at what I'm doing. See the new thing that I am doing. And Peter's probably trying to process this. I mean, Peter knew um, that being Jewish wasn't enough. You needed faith in the Messiah, faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You need to receive the Spirit. He would say, if you wanted to belong to this new movement, you need to repent of your sin and be baptized. Um, Acts 2, verse 38, the day of Pentecost. What do we need to do to be saved? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. This is for you and for your children. 
That was in Jerusalem. And up to now, he probably would have said, if any Gentiles want to come in, well, you've got to come through Judaism. You've got to come through our culture. You've got to come through our ways. You've got to become Jewish first. Because there was this uh, way of being God's people, um, food and family and these laws that, that seemed to be, keep people apart. Well, they were set up by God in the first place um, to do a proper, important job, to set apart Israel for himself, to keep Israel uh, separate from the rest of the world against and for the day when he would finally act through them to do what he had always planned. And now in Jesus and by the Spirit, God had done what he had always promised. And so now the time has come when all alike, Gentile as well as Jew, could be welcomed into his family on the same terms. There's no two-tier system. There's no second-class citizenship. And so these two visions collide. And Cornelius implores Peter, he says, speak God's word to me. God will use Peter to be about the business, uh, not of shunning those who are unclean, but making this Gentile clean, making him new, sharing the good news of the gospel with the centurion. And Peter, he comes through. His presentation is clear and concise and beautiful. It's what we had in our reading today. Verse 34 says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, and we don't have to cringe <laughs> because now the Holy Spirit is indwelling Peter and speaking through him. And we don't have to go, oh no, what's Peter going to say? Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness. And everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He gives this beautiful testimony of how Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power goes forth. You get this snapshot of his teaching his miracles, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. He lets them know that faith and the forgiveness of sins is available to everyone, to Jew, to Gentile, to you, and to me. And Acts 10 ends unmistakably with the Holy Spirit falling upon these Gentiles. And they're all baptized. And so the church is like, oh my goodness, we're baptizing Gentiles now. <laughs> 
look at the manifestation of the Messiah to the Gentiles. Look at this idea that Jesus came as king of the Jews, but he always came as king of the whole world. God's salvation, his plan was always for the nations, for the Gentiles to stream in and bow down before the Lord, to come from the east and even from the west to recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom to be welcomed home. And over and over and over again in the book of Acts, we have all these examples of people who seem like they shouldn't follow Jesus. And I think they're there just to remind us that no one is too far gone to be welcomed home. Not stubborn religious leaders in Israel or blue-collar fishermen like Peter, who had denied the Lord. Not royal pagans from the east like the Magi or even these grizzled soldiers, these enemies of Israel from the west. No one is unreachable. If you take anything with you this morning about this, the season of Epiphany, I would say it's to pray for those around us. Pray for those who, uh, in our own human frailty, we would say, they're, no, they're too far gone. They're unreachable. They've done this or they are that. The Epiphany season would say, um, God wants to welcome them home. They will come and recline at table from east and west with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. We, the church, are called like that star, the Bethlehem star, uh, to be a light post and a beacon like the one that led the Magi, to point people to the Savior, and then not to be shocked when it works. When the least likely, like shepherds or Magi or centurions are drawn rather than the religious good people. Epiphany is all about the gospel. The announcement going out to the whole world, to all the nations, that Christ is Lord. That he has come. That he has appeared. That he is king. And it's all about the grace that he holds out to you and to me, to all of us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.